Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Mark Green, director of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Mark Green, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. It's great to have you here. So you grew up in a Jewish home. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you encounter Jesus, Yeshua? Well, I suppose, uh, you know, the older you get, the more, the more things you see in your childhood and your teenagehood and your young adulthood along the way. Um, but I, you know, I went to an English school. So in English schools, you, you are told about Jesus. And uh, I think uh, we had to search the scriptures, which was both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then I actually, I went to a boarding school. And um, I think I was always interested in God somehow in, during that time. And I remember uh, one, one chapel play, I got the part of Jesus. Bit of stereotyping, as you can see. <laughs> How did your parents feel? Well, I don't think they were too, too bothered about, you know, the acting thing. The following year, I got the part of God. So, you know, there was nowhere to go after yeah, that. Yeah. But it was a curious thing. I remember uh, even back then, a sort of a yearning for something. And um, a friend of mine um, wanted to... Uh, was quite serious about God. And uh, we, we studied John's gospel, he, he and I, with the assistant chaplain. And, um, and it, was, it was during one of those moments, it was one of the really significant moments, really, um, during that time. And I've had several of them. Um, and this 17, 18-year-old young man at a boys' boarding school asked the chaplain at the time, the assistant chaplain, youngish man, do you believe in sex before marriage? And uh, he said, no. And then he said, I expect my wedding night to be one of the most embarrassing <laughs> events of my life. Yes. Um, he said, I'm, I'm a virgin and I expect that. And, and I thought, that is amazing in that culture to be that vulnerable and to be that honest and that transparent, you know, in that kind of boardy boarding school culture. Yes, yes. And it was, it was that kind of courage that really hit me. Somebody who was not more concerned about the truth, more concerned about the impact on us than he was about what he looked like in society. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't become a Christian at school. I went off to Israel for a year, spent a year on a kibbutz, uh, learned some Hebrew, and then went uh, up to university. And I was colour-coded in the end by the University College and Christian Fellowship as somebody that you could go and talk to, but you wouldn't get anywhere with. Yes. And so I had lots of fantastic conversations. This um, young Christian, really, hadn't been a Christian very long, came to talk to me about Jesus. Now, I had been talked to about Jesus by some very gifted apologists, yes. people who, who are really good at it and, you know, you could debate for hours. But that's what it was. But there was something about this guy. I mean, he was no dummy. He was, you know, it was a good university. But uh, it wasn't about an argument. Somehow with him, the dynamic of the conversation was, is this real? And I remember him one day asking me, so, you know, 50 yards from the synagogue in Thompson's Lane, literally. Yes. In, yes. In, 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 uh, it was actually at Cambridge, 50 yards from this synagogue. He said, so would you, would you like to put your trust in Jesus or some such kosher yes. prayer? And, uh, and I, I said yes. And subsequently, you know, I used to share my testimony as if I'd figured it all out for myself. You know, 
he came to challenge me about the truths about Jesus and I went away and I thought about it and so on and so forth and then I decided that it was true. But that's not what happened. No. That's not what happened. What happened was God was in the room. Present. Present. And you, and you experienced that. I experienced something. Something, yes. Was in the room and I felt wooed, drawn, almost as if it was like an, an Im- a willing embrace, somebody drawing you into a, an embrace, a moment of surrender, if you like, like, like a kiss, if you like. Yes. And would I have been able to say at that moment, I am a sinner? No. Would I have been able to say at that moment, you know, why is Jesus the answer? No. But that he was the answer and that he was real, that I did turn to him at that moment and he did something in me at that moment is absolutely undeniable. So how did your parents uh, respond to that? Well, um, interestingly, really, I suppose, uh, um, I don't think I was a terribly good witness because I, when I was uh, invited to go overseas uh, two and a half years later to, to work in New York, I... I um, I told my father about this and some of my Christian friends were very worried about me going to New York because it was a sort of Babylon on the Hudson, you know, yes. the most corrupt town on the face of the planet sort of idea. And, uh, and uh, I told my dad this and he said, oh, I, I didn't realise your faith was so important to you. So I wasn't doing a very good job. They were very accepting, really, interestingly. Um, and um, subsequently, my brother also became a follower of Jesus. And again, my parents were really, really accepting, which which was, you know, some people, some people's parents are sort of disowned them, but that did not happen to me. No, it didn't happen at no. all, no. So when you went to New York, you were working in advertising. I was. So how many years were you in that area of... I'd, so I spent 10 years doing it, and I have to say, I'm, I loved it. I just loved the people, the, the pace, the creativity. The lunches were good too. So yes. It was a great, great time, very good time. And saw God work in amazing ways, really. Very and then time. from that, you, you moved into theological education at um, the London School of Theology. Um, and you've been with LICC, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Well remembered. For 20 years. So tell 21, us, my boy. 21 now. Right. Tell us who started LICC and what is it? LICC uh, was started by a man called John Stott. And uh, he started it yeah. in 1982. And, uh, you know, famous, probably more famous globally than, or at least around the world than he is in the UK these yes. days. But um, a man who had, in a sense, seen um, what Jesus was saying about everybody, which is yes. that everybody has a calling and everybody can be, that God can work through anybody in any place, anywhere, anytime. And so he founded the Institute to carry the torch for that and to, uh, empower people to live that out, yeah. And so the main things that LICC does today, what are they? Well, the main thing is uh, what we're trying to do today is a small thing, which is to change the culture of the UK church so that the Church of Christ does what he asked them to do, which is to disciple all his people for their calling in everyday life, Monday through Sunday, not just Sundays and weekends. People that, on the whole, in our country at least, will not be going to church on Sunday and are only reachable, in a sense, by people who are out in the world. So how can we make the most of people's connections in the world? So how, how do we 
and how do you empower and equip the, all these people who are doing that? Well, um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of practical things we do, but what we're trying to do is to help somebody, first of all, see this, you know, you're going to the supermarket. Is that significant? So Thelma is 93 years old, and, and before she encounters our material, she thinks, I'm 93 years old, I'm in this small, lovely church, I do some things in the church, and it's, and it's lovely, but I don't think God has a mission field for me. And then one day she realises that God does. She, she does something called Life on the Front Line. Where is the place where you engage with Christians regularly during the week? And she writes she has a place, and it is the, the supermarket run by an Asian family at the bottom of her road that she goes to. So she starts to pray for the family. And even though she's 93 years old and, you know, the weather in West Bromwich is not always gorgeous, yes. whether it's raining or you know, snowing or whatever it might be, she's going to go and bless those people. And so that's what she does. She's got a mission field. And, she, and her pastor told me she's exhilarated and she's praying for them. And uh, although her friends want to carry her, you know, carry her uh, shopping, don't do the shopping, you're going to fall over and then we're in trouble. But actually now it turns out pretty soon they're carrying, the family's carrying her shopping home for them. So she gets another 10 minutes with them. And this is a place she's chosen to bless. So suddenly, God is working through me. I've got a ministry all of my own, if, if you like, which, sure. the, which the church then supports. It's, it's beautiful. And, you know, it almost doesn't matter what it is. You know, stories of people who walk through parks and pick up litter. We've got stories of dog walkers for Jesus. We've got stories of CEOs for Jesus. But there's a total exhilaration that happens to people. And we see it again and again. It's almost like a second conversion. You mean God is with me in this place. It's, it's Jacob in the middle of nowhere. Is God really in this place? Could he really work here in this toxic environment? Am I the presence for him? And when you know that, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to recognise um, that you are being fruitful. Yes. If the Spirit of God is in you, you are likely to be being fruitful. However, what we discovered, and, and we discovered this by working with some young people, as that happens, youngish people, you know, late 20s, early 30s, who were sure. gung-ho about ministries that happens in the workplace, all kinds of jobs. And uh, we suddenly realised that they didn't think they were being fruitful. I mean... You wouldn't credit. They didn't think they were doing anything for the kingdom or God. One of them helped to set up NHS 24, the equivalent in Scotland. One of them, a 34-year-old woman, had turned around two schools that were effectively in the Scottish equivalent of special measures. You turn around two schools, you're affecting a whole community through that. I'm not doing anything with God. Why not? And are they known as Christians? They were. But the thing was, what they thought was the only measure that God is interested in is what you might call direct social action. Yes. Am I doing something for the poor or have I had an evangelistic conversation? That is very much on your heart and also on mine. Of course. But if that's the only measure, you don't necessarily have one of those every day. So no. is my day wasted? Yeah. You know, am I wasting my life? No. And so when people begin to see that they're already being fruitful, they get confident. Oh, God is working through me. Oh, I have a testimony other than my testimony. Yes. I have a testimony about how God helped me through that difficult time at work. Therefore, I've got a testimony when you're going through a difficult time, just as we might have a testimony about a relationship. So we begin to help people see how God has already worked through them and then how he might. There seems to have been over the years, Mark, almost this divide between uh, the sacred and the secular. And we've made out that, that Sunday is sacred and the rest of the week is secular. But actually, all of it is sacred. 
everything. Work is sacred, play is sacred, leisure is sacred, you know, sleep is sacred, uh, Sunday is sacred. Why have we done this? Why have we not appreciated that everything that we do is sacred? Well, people blame the Greeks, can you believe? I know. <laughs> you know, it's when the Greeks got hold of it. So the notion was that there was a whole period of time in, in, in Western culture where people believed that the highest thing you could do would, was to contemplate, that was to pray. That's yes. The world of the mind and not of the body and uh, things of the hands and what you do every day. Well, those, those really don't matter. What really matters is that you pray uh, and, you, and you meditate on God. So you have, the, so you have a privileging, if you like, of, of vicars and missionaries and people who've got holy jobs and other people, they're not holy. Yeah. You know, if you were Daniel today, well, I'm sorry, you're working for the civil service, you're working in government, you're not really very significant. If you were Nehemiah today, forget it, you know. If, if you're Deborah, you know, if you like running a tribe and being a judge in Israel, well, sorry. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think there's that very deep thing that's happened. And also partly it is, if you like, it's affected church culture. Yes. So church culture, you know, I love the church. I've been in lots of them. Well, not very many, actually. I've been moderately faithful <laughs> for quite a long time. And I was hugely blessed. My first proper church in New York was a, a whole life disciple-making church. So I know it's possible. But I think um, church culture, we, we tend to talk about the things of the church when we come together. Um, how can we support this? And the heroes that we hear, yes. the stories we hear from the front are about people doing things in the church or for the church, as opposed to what is what are the people of God, the living stones doing in the world? Yes. And, you know, people sometimes say at the moment, and, um, you know, we're in a period of rather severe lockdown in, in, in the United Kingdom. And uh, people say, so, you know, say to pastors sometimes, what's your church doing? And, and, Sometimes the response, expected response is, well, my church is, you know, we're, we're, we're helping with the food bank. Absolutely right. We're visiting some people insofar as you can. We've got a hardship fund and all those things are fantastic. But another way of looking is, what's my church doing? Well, we've got three people stacking shelves at Tesco. Yes. We've got five people who are working in the care home. We've got six people who are running a, a neighborhood app and getting behind people. We've got We've got nurses. All, nurses. We've got policemen. We've got policemen. Yeah, that's We've got right. truck drivers who are still yes. doing that, and they're doing that in the power of the spirit. We're still in the world doing something. So you want to hold those two things together. Yes. What would you say, Mark, to people who in the workplace, you know, they're they're struggling. Uh, people are aware that they're Christians and they're being teased for being people of faith. Um, uh, maybe they're being bullied. Um, and, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to exercise the fruit of the spirit sometimes in an environment that is very hostile to you. What advice would you give them? Well, first of all, I want to say that um, not all workplaces are hostile. And certainly in the UK, um, that is decreasingly the case. Yes. And one of the reasons for that is because of what, you know, what we call in the United Kingdom the, the diversity agenda. So now people are, in, particularly in the larger companies, you know, there is a Christian group and it's very easy to form one because there's also a Muslim group and a Hindu group and a Jain group and a yes. Jewish group and an LGBTQ group and so on and so forth. So at one level, 
it's it's harder for people to diss people in that way, to disrespect people's faith. Um, and the second thing I think is that, um, of course, there's hostility. And in some places, I mean, we know a lot about this. So there are some places which are deeply hostile yes. to, to that. Um, but there's um, a curious thing that in the end, um, relationship is what counts. And people who trust someone and who have affection for them are almost always in the end going to be open with them. Yeah. Having said that, you know, one of the issues is how do you, how do you sustain yourself? Well, how do you sustain yourself is you have people praying for you. And curiously, once you realize that this is an important place to God, you begin to pray for it. Now, it may seem obvious that you'd pray for a place that you spend 40 hours a week in yeah. or 35 hours engaging with or for those tasks, but it isn't obvious. Yes. And curiously, the research we have suggests that it's really, really easy to be a prayerful Bible reading person, but not to be praying about that area of your life. Yes. Or not necessarily to be reading the Bible through the lens of what is God saying to me about my work. Yes, or absolutely. Or whatever it might be. So once the mindset changes, the Lord's resources begin to come up. And I think the main thing is to have somebody praying for you. Definitely. You've written a lot of things, Mark, and I've benefited from several of your books that I've read over the years and found so helpful. Um, this book, Fruitfulness on the Front Line. Tell us about this book. Uh, well, that book came out of working with um, those uh, 20-somethings and early 30-somethings I mentioned in Scotland who, who had been you know, so gung-ho to be fruitful for Jesus but didn't think they were. And we realized that we needed to give them some kind of a framework. How, how can you think about your fruitfulness, you know, biblically? So we came up with uh, what we call the six M's, six M's of fruitfulness. So modeling godly character. Well, that's the, you know, love, joy, peace, patience. That's the list in Galatians. Yes. You know, and so on. So, is that, so is that fruit? We, how do we model that? Well, let me give you an example of all six. Yes. So, yes. So I'll give you all six. So making good work, ministering grace and love, molding the culture around you, being a, a mouthpiece for truth and justice and a messenger of the gospel. So you're a barista. How do you model godly character? Monday morning, it's raining. The queue is out the door and somebody is trying to make the decision between a macchiato and uh, a latte with chocolate sprinkles um, and should they have vanilla cordial in it or hazelnut cordial can't make up their mind in other words potential for frustration yes. potential for impatience and so you're being patient um, how do you make good work as a barista well you've got to get the the espresso shot in the milk if that's the coffee you're making within 10 seconds for every customer if you don't do that, the chemistry falls apart. So you're making... You've got to get it in within 10 seconds. Within 10 seconds. If they leave it there for more than 10 seconds, don't, don't, don't drink it. How interesting. I didn't know that. Right, go on. Um, so making good work and then ministering grace and love. Well, if, if you're a, a barista in a, in a, in a busy place, so you, you can't necessarily have a conversation with everybody, even if you have been trained to write their name on the cup. You can't have a conversation with everybody because you're too busy. But you're asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me to see who I spend a bit more time with. Help me to know who this day I minister a bit more minister to. Or you're picking up the, the glasses and, and the cups 
and you're spending a minute or two at the table of a customer or on your break, you go and talk to somebody. So you're ministering great love. How do you mold a culture to your barista? Well, you're gracious, you're warm, you're pleased to see people. You try to remember their names. You notice they've had their head on, whatever it might be, like, like a good like a good bartender, if you like, like a good, Absolutely. you know, those sorts of people who remember those things. You, you create a different atmosphere. So that was the, the molding cult, culture. molding culture. So yes. mouthpiece for truth and justice, which sounds very sort of Tiananmen Square uh, at the barricades, but truth and justice. Well, if you're a barista, um, justice. Well, somebody's got three Saturdays in a row and or three Sundays in a row. And you say, well, I'll take one of theirs because they've, they've had too many Sundays. I know I normally go to church, but it's not really fair. So I'll volunteer to make sure that this is equitable within the team. And then there's being a messenger for the gospel. Of course, Lord, give me an opportunity to share something of you. Testify to the difference you make in my life. Help somebody yes. come and see what Jesus is like. You get to do five of those six. You get to model godly character or not. You get to do the thing you do in the power of the Spirit or not. You get to, to minister grace and love, even if it's the person delivering your groceries. You get to create a culture around you. You get to be an advocate for truth and justice, even by not lying. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And when you do those, and then you start to talk about Jesus, then who do they think he is? You've shown that he's a God of truth. You've shown that he's a God of kindness. You've shown that he's a God of love. You've shown that he cares about the little things in life, not just you know, not just the big things. He cares about little things. Who is this God? He's a God who cares about everything. He's a God who's kind. He's a God who's, who wants to, people to flourish. It's a very, I mean, incarnational evangelism in yeah. a sense. But, uh, we, and our witness needs to be both visual and verbal. Attitudes and actions. Very good. Beliefs, behaviour. And I think that's what you're kind of making the point here. Just remind us again of those, those, those headings, which are all in this book, which is what this book's about. It is, yeah. Okay, so go on. Number one. Um, modelling godly character. Modelling godly character. And you said expressing like the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Okay, two. Making good work. So working and actually not to be lazy. <laughs> well, that would be a start. <laughs> that would be a start, isn't it? Don't cut corners. Yeah. I mean, in some places, that, that is a witness in itself. Yes. It's a witness in itself. In, what, yeah. in, in talking to one particular person, a carpenter, as that happens, um, you know, ask him, what, what are you good at in the Lord at work? He said, well, well, I come in and I clock in and I do my day's work and I clock out. Well, what's so special about that? Well, lots of people clock in and play table tennis for half an hour and then take overtime. Yes. So in his culture... That was a witness. Yes. And it seems obvious, but it was a witness. So you're right. It is, yeah. And it, it's interesting. Um, I read a survey that said that most of the sick days that are taken in the UK are Fridays and Mondays. Is yeah. that a coincidence? Probably not. People like a long weekend. They do. And just ring in sick. Or their football team has lost. There's, yes. there's also... A, a connection between absentees and your football team losing. But that's defrauding your employer and, and that's not a good witness. Okay, that was two. So basically, do a good day's work. Indeed. And be focused. Or a good day's activity wherever you are. You may not be in good work. Good day, of course. Good day's activity. And um, then uh, modelling, uh, ministering grace and love. And meaning in the way that you talk... 
And the way you do things. In the way that you do can things. I, can, I, can I think of a way to bless someone? Can I, oh, there's that little article, I could ping them a link on that, or I could get them a cup of coffee, or I could, you know, send them a note, or I could call them after the Zoom call and say, are yeah. you okay today, or show some concern, or I could celebrate them in some way. Yeah. I think celebrating people is a really significant thing. Very few people get as much affirmation as, as uh, vicars do. Nice sermon, vicar. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're the barista, it's being kind, yeah. it's being patient. And if they can't make up their mind, or may I make a suggestion? Yes. Of course. Next point. So moulding the culture. How do you mould the culture? How do you create a different atmosphere in your bit of the garden? If you're working for IBM, your chances of changing all of IBM by next Monday are small. But in your team or in your neighbourhood or with your neighbour or your school gate, how do you mould a culture? A friend of mine who goes, goes to my church, she, she was talking about uh, school gate culture. It's a woman. She has three young children and she has a half-time job. And she said to me that um, the school gate, it's primary women in this one that, that go to this school gate who are delivering the children, primary school age children, said it's a very competitive place. And did I, I didn't know, you know, very competitive place. And she said the alpha females are busy. They look busy. They're in a hurry. And that's how they communicate that they're busy because busy, to be busy is to be important. And of course, at one level, she's got a half-time job and three children, which is pretty much a full-time job as well. So she's also busy. But she realised that this, this posture of busyness, of scuttling in and scuttling out and, oh, see you, see you, but, you, know, you know, we'll catch up sometime, all that kind of stuff, was actually getting in the way. Yes. So she decided that she would make an effort to not look like one of these alpha females. So she would walk slowly. She'd communicate availability. Now, sometimes it's not legalism. Sometimes she's got to get somewhere. It's fine. She is in a hurry. She forgot everything or whatever it might be. But the posture. And I remember calling her three weeks after, you know, we'd had this conversation. I said, how's it going? I was hoping for a spectacular story, but I didn't get one at that point. And she said, well, nothing spectacular. But, you know, I just found that uh, starting to connect to people and relating much, much more richly with people. And apart from anything else, I just feel so much more human, so much more pleasant than experience going there. So she's now radiating something different. Amazing. So if anyone uh, wants to learn more about how to be what they're meant to be in their work, London Institute Contemporary Christianity... So you've got resources, books. Books, some courses, some, uh, you know, free stuff, essays, a weekly blog on Bible and culture and culture and Bible and that kind of stuff. So whole whole range of stuff. We also help church leaders um, shift their culture. We also work with denominations and indeed with the Church of England even. There you go. Mark Green, thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Lovely to be here. You are a joy bringer. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> what a great reminder from Mark Green that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that we are serving the Lord. I hope that's encouraged you. I hope that's inspired you. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. 
To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.